This evening's talk will be called The Elephant's Footprint. And this is a, an image the Buddha uses um, uh, on a number of occasions. He employs it as a, as a metaphor for something that is capable of containing everything else. In other words, the, the overarching framework for, in this instance, a practice. The way the metaphor works is that he would have observed um, as he spent time in forests, wandering through the still very uh, wild plains of North India of his time, uh, the footprints of the various animals in the jungle. And would have seen, quite obviously really, that the, of all of these footprints, the largest one was that of the elephant. And he compares the elephant's footprint to uh, the Dharma itself. And just as the elephant's footprint, as the largest of that of all the animals, is able to contain the footprints of every other creature, human, animal, bird, insect, they can all fit inside the footprint of the elephant. In the same way, the practice of the fourfold task, as I prefer to call it, or more traditionally, the Four Noble Truths, is the teaching or the practice that contains everything else. So that's the framework, the, the overriding uh, sensibility uh, that holds everything that we consider to be uh, part of our practice, the Eightfold Path, the experience of Nirvana, the letting go of uh, grasping, of reactivity, and the embracing of our human, our sentient condition. On another occasion, he compares the elephant's footprint not to the four tasks or the four truths, but he compares it to the virtue of care, uh, apamada in Pali, usually translated as something like uh, diligence or, or, vigilant, or vigilance. But I feel that when we look into what he means by apamada, it comes, I think, quite close to what we would describe as a kind of Wakeful care is how one translator renders it. And this virtue of care, in other words, both a caring for oneself, a caring for others, and also care in the sense of a kind of carefulness, being careful, applying attention, uh, sensitivity to what we do. That this virtue too, care, is one the Buddha describes as at the root of all other virtues. All virtues are contained, he says, within the virtue 
of care. And care, therefore, is also compared to the footprint of the elephant. And this leads one to, to feel that the, the practice of the four truths or the four tasks can also be thought of as the cultivation of a caring and a careful uh, perspective and attitude and relationship to our lives as a whole. Now in both cases, whether we think of care, which is clearly a virtue, it's something that we seek to, uh, to cultivate, to uh, develop in our practice, and also the four truths, which as we saw in the previous talk, um, are understood really as the um, framework of practice. And we summarized this at the end of the last talk as embracing dukkha or fully understanding the condition we are in. And I addressed that in the meditation instruction yesterday morning. The second task is that of letting go of tangha, usually translated as craving, but as we'll see uh, later this evening, perhaps we could think of that as reactivity, letting go of reactivity, of coming to see the stopping of reactivity. That's the third task. Beholding those moments in our lives when we find ourselves not reacting, still, clear, open. Again, this is not some remote attainment we might get after years of diligent practice. It's a possibility that can open up in any moment, at any time. And the fourth task is that of actually developing and cultivating the path itself. And we can summarize this, or I would summarize this, uh, under the acronym ELSA. Embrace, let go, see, or stop, and act. And by thinking of the, the four truths uh, in this way, we move beyond uh, the idea that the practice of the Dharma or Buddhism is about gaining a correct understanding of what is true, maybe even what is ultimately true, uh, and then according our lives to that correct perception of how things are. But that whole way of thinking, we might think of it as uh, metaphysical thinking. This is the nature of reality. These are the truths. This is the truth. That whole way of thinking, I feel, is uh, in somehow at odds with the emphasis we find throughout the Buddhist tradition um, on the idea of practice. And I would argue that um, originally what the Buddha presented was a task-based ethics. In other words, 
uh, a way of life that sought to realize the good or sought to um, enable people to become the sort of people they would like to be, to enable communities to aspire to become the sort of communities they would seek to be. And this is achieved through this complex of interrelated tasks. And so it becomes uh, entirely irrelevant whether it is in fact the nature of life to be unsatisfactory or dukkha, or whether the origin of dukkha is grasping or craving. These are, um, these are statements, metaphysical statements, that claim to account for the nature of reality itself. My hunch is the Buddha had no interest in that. And there are many parables, uh, many statements, his refusal to answer or make any statement about metaphysics, the origin of the world, the end of the world, are mind and the body the same or different? All of these questions he refused to say anything about. Not because he didn't know the answer, or not because he did know the answer but just wasn't going to say, but simply because that way of approaching life he felt to be not uh, conducive to what uh, tasks he had in mind. The, the practice has to do with um, confronting or coming to terms with our condition in the world, the suffering that we experience personally, socially, communally, environmentally, and learning how to respond to that in an appropriate way that actually might make a difference. And that's what we're going to look at uh, this evening and the day after tomorrow uh, we'll bring that to some sort of uh, conclusion. So the first task within this elephant's footprint of the four um, is that of uh, fully um, opening ourselves to and embracing the condition we are in. And since I already spoke about that uh, yesterday. Uh, I don't need to go over what we've already looked at. But to consider further what it means to um, embrace. Again, this is a rather colloquial, idiomatic translation of the Pali term pari which means to know Nya, pari, means around. So to know completely or fully. But what does that mean? Does it mean to acquire uh, the optimal amount of information about something? I don't think so. Um, it has to do with a kind of knowing that is more like the French uh, connaître, or the German kennen, than the French savoir or the German wissen. In other words, it's not the kind of knowing that gains uh, certainty about a particular fact, 
knowledge, the acquisition of knowledge, but rather the kind of knowing that we talk of when we say, uh, you know, I know this person very well, or I know this piece of music, or I know the way to Newton Abbott. In other words, it's a knowing that has to do with relationships, a knowing that extends beyond uh, mere factual understanding. Fortunately, we have a sutta, a discourse in the early canon, where the Buddha is asked, well, what do you mean by parinya, fully knowing? And he gives an answer. And his answer is, uh, he says, fully knowing is the absence of greed, the absence of hatred, and the absence of confusion or delusion. Now, again, this might initially sound a bit strange. What, what, do you, what, what does he mean to say that to, to know something fully means to be without greed, to be without hatred, to be without delusion? What this points to, I feel, is a kind of non-reactive knowing. A knowing that is not colored by what we want, a knowing that is not colored by what we don't like, and a knowing that is not colored by our egotistic self-interest, if you wish. Delusion is a term we could unpack further, but I think in this context, it has very much to do with how um, the way we know things, the way we understand things, is very often uh, almost exclusively concerned with what I can then get out of that. In other words, it's a sort of self-centered uh, uh, knowing that is only really interested in our own uh, uh, our, our own. Uh, gratification uh, or our own sense of uh, pride or uh, arrogance perhaps um, whereas the kind of knowing that's implied in this embrace is that knowing that we might for example in meditation or when we are alone in nature for example that comes to us when the mind has settled down, when we're no longer, as it were, being tossed about by our likes and our dislikes, our almost incessant preoccupation with me and mine, when those reactions, those drives, those instincts, those tendencies come to rest, and a kind of knowing is made possible that is no longer inflected by their agendas. So how do we, as a practice, um, work towards establishing that kind of knowing? In many ways, it has to do with systematically um, overcoming certain habits of mind, uh, certain habits of perception. And this 
gets right to the heart of what we call vipassana. Pasana comes from the Pali pasati, which means to see. And vi, the prefix, means to see with a certain intensity. Vi uh, amplifies that seeing. It's not just a mundane seeing, but it's seeing with a certain uh, penetration, a certain acuity and sharpness of mind. And the cultivation of this sort of seeing, which I think is almost synonymous in many ways with this embrace or this fully knowing, is to pay attention to features of our experience that we tend to overlook or ignore or deny. And these features are classically the feature of impermanence, the feature of dukkha, in other words, the unreliable, the tragic, the, 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 the unsatisfying nature of experience, the feature of anatta, which means not-self, in other words, noticing that whatever occurs to us, whether it's going on in our minds, whether it's occurring out in the world, in some deep sense is not intrinsically Stevens or Stephen or you or me, but it is an impersonal process that has emerged out of myriad conditions in the past and is coming to fruition in this moment. We don't have to somehow take it personally. Uh, hold on to it as somehow securing my sense of who I am and who you are. And we can extend this further into ideas like emptiness, to pay attention to how things do not exist in and of themselves as separate, uh, cut-off uh, entities that somehow persist independently of all other conditions. And of course the flip side of that is to pay attention to how everything is contingent and connected and part of a web of life, as it were. So this, um, this training in meditation um, has both the need to somehow bring our minds to a greater quality of stillness which we do through the practice of silence, through the practice of continuously coming back to the same point again and again, stabilizing our attention, which is called shamatha. But once the attention is stabilized, we then can use that stability and that openness uh, to really notice carefully, caringly, uh, the transient, tragic, impersonal, empty, contingent, connected nature of experience itself as it comes and it goes from moment to moment. And this kind of um, awareness, this kind of knowing, 
um, is also, I feel, more a quality of endless inquiry and questioning and puzzlement and curiosity and not knowing. In other words, having the humility to realize that in the end, we don't know who we are. We don't know what is going on. And rather than feeling that that's a failing, that that's somehow uh, a condition that needs to be corrected by acquiring more information, it allows us actually to return uh, to uh, a fundamental sense of wonder, of mystery, uh, in the midst of which our lives are lived. So with a lot of these ideas, if you, you just pick up one little thread, very often it unravels and unfolds into a far more complex picture of uh, what we're here calling vipassana or fully knowing that um, becomes a kind of encompassing understanding or perspective or openness to our experience as such. It also goes beyond um, simply paying attention to what it is that we ignore or overlook or, or deny but also it has an affective dimension as well. In other words, it's not just about knowing, it's also about feeling. It's about impermanence, it's not just noticing that things change, but at the same time, uh, refining what it's like or what it feels like for things to change our breath, our heartbeat, our body, the sensations in our body, the life around us that's endlessly unfolding and mutating, arising, passing away. What does that feel like? And dukkha, suffering, not that we know that, but we feel it. We feel our own suffering, our own anguish, our own anxiety, our own pain, but as we let go of our, our self-interest, we become that much more open and perhaps exposed uh, to the suffering and the pain of others. It becomes, less and, it becomes less and less easy to live a life in which there's a border called me and mine, and then beyond that, something else. So this practice begins to erode um, uh, that sort of almost instinctive sense of being an isolate uh, being, um, interacting with other isolated beings. These divisions begin to, uh, to, to, to break down to some degree, and that opens up what we call empathy the capacity to feel the suffering of the other as though it were our own. And that, I feel, is the very foundation of, of ethics as well. That just as I am, so are you. Just as you are, so am I. 
Understanding that, the Buddha says, one should therefore not harm others. That we find in the Sutta Nipata. It's very close to the Gospel passage, do unto others as you would have them do to, to, to yourself. But it shows very much that this kind of uh, knowing, this kind of understanding, um, uh, operates very much within the framework of an ethic. This empathy uh, is what makes us realize that what uh, any conception of the good or of a person that I would aspire to be is inseparable from the uh, good uh, of others. We can't isolate ourselves in that way at all. And this leads us to, I think, quite uh, naturally, the first of the four bodhisattva vows that we spoke of the other night. Uh, Sentient beings are boundless. I vow to free them all. So this first task, I think, through practice, through cultivation, leads to a commitment a commitment to actually respond to the suffering of the world, which, of course, includes us, a response to my own suffering as well, of course, but in a way that leads us unavoidably, I suspect, uh, to an engagement with the suffering of the world. So... In terms of this fourfold task, or these four tasks, um, once we have established a certain relationship to the suffering of life, how then do we go about responding to it? And the next three tasks, I think, offer us a kind of a, um, a map or a, a framework uh, for answering that question, how do I respond to the suffering of all beings? And the first point um, is stated in the second task, which is letting go of reactivity, or letting go of craving. Um, I'll explain why I choose reactivity over craving. The word in Pali uh, or Sanskrit is tangha, uh, which means something literally like thirst. But this has led to translating it as craving or desire. But I find this inadequate because it puts too much emphasis on desire and it somehow feeds into the... Um, renunciant mindset that all kinds of desire are somehow uh, bad. And this is a, has a very long history in the Indian tradition. We find it right back in the Rig Veda, one of the earliest Indian uh, hymns, which talks of how the, the whole of life, the whole of the world, originated from desire. Karma, not um, tangha but karma, K-A with a macron, M-A, not karma as in good and bad karma. 
Karma means desire. And, Bu- and Buddhism has certainly um, uh, had uh, a history of, uh, of, of somehow demonizing desire. So I'd rather not use that language. I don't find it quite so helpful. But rather to think of tangha as that which arises when an organism encounters its environment. And this is how it's explained in the classic Buddhist doctrine of the 12 links of dependent origination. I'm not going to go into that now, but basically the core of that uh, uh, doctrine recognizes how um, when you come into contact with something, Martin has already touched on this, when the organism comes into contact with an object or another person, that generates a feeling or a feeling tone, and that feeling tone triggers a reaction. And what the term used in in that model is the feeling tone gives rise to tangha, craving. But we have to remember here that what uh, these reactions uh, involve is far more than just craving. Uh, They're just as much about aversion. If an unpleasant feeling is... uh, arises in us because of a contact with a particular object, then we are uh, we try to get rid of that. We want to push it away. If it's pleasant, we try to pull it towards us. If it's neutral, we're either disinterested or bored or um, or, or some some or some or, or, or some some something else. But in each case what happens is that uh, contact feeling gives rise to a reaction. And the way the Buddha describes this uh, metaphorically is by calling these reactions fires, the three fires he speaks of. And as you're probably aware, in his uh, third discourse, what's supposed to be his third discourse, he talks of how the whole world is on fire. The world is burning. The eyes are burning, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind are burning. Sight, sound, smells, tastes, touches, ideas are burning. And they're burning with what? They're burning with the fire of greed, with the fire of hatred and with the fire of delusion, or let's say, self-interest. Now, if we follow the metaphor of fire in the context of tangha being triggered by contact and feeling, then it seems that this corresponds quite closely what with what we would call an instinctive reaction or a conditioned or uh, habituated a pattern of, uh, re- of, uh, of, 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 of wanting, not wanting, being indifferent, uh, being bored, 
uh, wanting things to be my way or not in some other way that I disapprove of. In other words, it just happens automatically. And there is nothing wrong with that. This is simply what organisms do. And if we were to understand that, I think, in terms of, ev of, of, of our evolution uh, as, uh, as, as human beings, as, as uh, larger primates, then this is simply the strategy of behavior that has got us to where we are now. We've managed to get what we want, get rid of what stands in our way, and we've managed to do so by cultivating a very strong sense of a permanent self that will be around next year, for example, when uh, the crops we've just planted will ripen. So reactivity, or tangha, is describing a purely naturalistic process. So when we're sitting in meditation or when we're going about our daily lives, we're constantly encountering and impacting with a world, whether it's people or situations or beautiful landscapes, and as soon as we do that, a reaction is triggered. And that just happens. That's just what goes on. And we don't have to feel uh, that, uh, in any sense, say, guilty about an attachment or a desire or a fear or a lust coming up. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. It's what goes on. It's only when we choose to act upon that reaction that we enter into the sphere of morals. I can choose to follow that desire or that aversion uh, or that self-interested thought or I can choose not to. And it's at that point that ethics comes into play. But the actual primacy of our experience is simply the legacy of our evolutionary, social uh, conditioning, our past, and that's just what rises up. And the Buddha uses this word, samudaya, what rises up. And the practice in the second task, literally, means to let go of what rises up. So the first task is to embrace what appears, what is present. The second task is to let go of what rises up. To let go, therefore, of reactivity. So what um, occurs in reactivity is a kind of a flaring in the same way that when we strike a match against a matchbox, a flame rises up. And the practice uh, is not about blowing the flame out or somehow um, trying to suppress what's risen up, but 
simply, again, embracing what happens. This rising up is part of life itself. And to that extent, it is also within the scope of the first task of fully knowing dukkha, fully knowing life. So when we're sitting in meditation, for example, and some desire or some fear or some anxiety uh, surges up into our consciousness, the practice is to be able to say, yes, that's what's happening. We don't have to judge it as good or bad. We simply recognize and acknowledge that that is what, in this moment, is going on. But nor do we need to identify with it, nor do we need to somehow uh, buy into its storyline. We can simply allow it to be what it is. And what we'll notice, if we're particularly if we've been noticing impermanence and uh, selflessness, uh, dukkha, emptiness and so on, is that what rises up has the nature of dying down. Whatever arises is something that passes. That's in a sense almost the, the slogan of the early Buddhist teaching. Whatever arises is something that passes. But at the same time, uh, we can also uh, reflect on what it's like to be in the grip of these powerful reactive emotions and thoughts. Uh, sometimes they're called destructive emotions or destructive thoughts. Uh, they're burning us up, as it were. And one of the images the Buddha uses to describe this, uh, uh, this reactive state is the term kila, which means aridity. That there's something barren in this reactivity. And this, uh, the Im image of barrenness implies that it's a state in which nothing can really grow, nothing can really flourish. That we're so preoccupied with this, uh, uh, this uh, nagging thought or this uh, insistent uh, emotion that we very quickly somehow get caught up in it. We indulge it in a certain way. And it kind of is a trap. It's one of Mara's snares, fish hooks. Once it's taken hold, it's quite difficult to somehow uh, not uh, get drawn off by it, caught up in it. So what we're doing in this kind of practice is to open up a non-reactive awareness, to cultivate a non-reactive awareness um, that's able to be with these reactions, these patterns, 
but without being of them. To observe them, to understand them, to accept them, but not to get caught up in them. There's a passage in Shantideva, who's a 8th century Indian Mahayana monk, and he compares these reactions to poisoned arrows, which again, we find that image in the Pali Canon as well. But the way that uh, Shantideva uses it, he says that as soon as the poisoned arrow has, has pierced your skin and the poison has entered into the bloodstream, it very quickly uh, uh, toxifies or poisons the whole body. And sometimes when there's a powerful emotion arising within us, um, if we get caught up in it, it can have a consequence of making our heart beat faster. We might come out in a, in a slight sweat. It's not just going on in the mind. It's taken over the body. And once it's done that, it's really kind of written into our experience in a way that's quite difficult to deal with. It hangs around. It doesn't disappear. We also notice that these um, reactions, as soon as we get caught up in them, uh, turn into uh, highly repetitive patterns of thought. We, we keep going over the same worry, the same train of ideas. Uh, it, it sort of becomes a compulsion, compulsive. And... I guess the real uh, problem with these uh, uh, kinds of emotions is that um, uh, they, get, that they, they keep us completely stuck. Uh, we don't, as it were, we're not actually going anywhere. We're going around in circles, in a way. And it feels very frustrating. You may have had this experience in meditation where you want to be still and present uh, to what's occurring, to be mindful and aware, but you can't rid yourself of some nagging anxiety. And you kind of wish it would go away. But of course, the more you do that, very often the more it sort of clings on. So the problem with reactivity or craving, however we translate it, is not so much that it causes suffering, although very often it does. In fact, arguably all craving and reactivity is painful in itself. But perhaps in the bigger picture, in the picture of a person seeking to lead an ethical life, Reactivity is a problem because it somehow inhibits or prevents us from flourishing, from responding to life, responding to the situation we find ourselves in, in a way that's not determined by our fears and our attachments and our egoism. This is a very eminently pragmatic approach to being a human practitioner.
practitioner. It doesn't require holding any metaphysical type beliefs at all. And frankly, I think that that is what made the Buddha's teaching so distinctive at his time, is he broke with the whole idea of belief, that we have to believe in some ultimate reality called God, or we have to believe in um, you know, endless life after life driven by karma or whatever. I don't think he had much time for those things. I don't think he was, in a sense, on a mission to, to reject them. But he simply understood his practice as not really concerned with those kinds of issues. The famous example of that is the example, again, of the poisoned arrow, where he imagines a man who's been shot by a poisoned arrow and is lying on the ground, is bleeding, and his friends um, say that they want to bring a doctor to get the arrow out, and the person says, no, 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 not until I know the name of the person who shot the arrow. Not until I know what kind of wood the arrow was made of. Not until I know the birds from which the feather of the arrow was made. Not until I have all of that information will I agree to let the doctor pull the arrow out. Now, of course, this is a, a, an absurd story. But the way the Buddha uses this parable is to uh, show that anyone who approaches him to learn about the Dharma but first needs to understand the nature of the universe, the relationship between the mind and the body, whether one exists after death or not, such a person will never get round to the actual practice of removing the arrow because they will be invested in pursuing answers to questions that probably will preoccupy them for the rest of their lives and they still may not ever get an answer. In other words, metaphysics is a huge distraction from the urgent task of removing the arrow. And the arrow is tangha. The arrow is reactivity, craving. So in other words, what the Buddha presented was a practice. A practice that worked with what was most pressing, what perhaps is still most pressing in human life, is to remove that which prevents us from being fully alive. And although the parable stops at the point of uh, the, uh, uh, after it's made its main point about the Arab being craving, about the need, therefore, not to preoccupy oneself with metaphysical questions, but if we were to take it a little bit further, surely the point of removing the arrow is in order that the person can resume their life on earth, they can recover their health 
after that injury and that they can continue to flourish as persons. That, I feel, is what the practice is about. How can we um, overcome what within us prevents us from being fully alive? And again, it's not an accident that reactivity, a craving, are compared to a kind of inner death. Not only is it arid, repetitive, compulsive, it's also described as death or mara. In other words, when we're caught up in these reactive patterns, we're not really alive. And here we can come back to where we started with the idea of care. There's a famous verse, number 21, in the Dhammapada, where the Buddha says that care is the path to the deathless, whereas the uncaring or the careless are as if already dead. Deathless we can perhaps understand positively as um, an abundant life. Care is the path to an abundant life, whereas the uncaring, the careless, are as if already dead. I, to me, this points very, very vividly to how the practice of the Dharma is the practice of learning to live abundantly and fully, and not in a kind of uh, hedonistic, individualistic way that we might think of today, but to live abundantly means to embrace the totality of our experience in this world, which means embracing the tragic, the suffering, the dukkha of ourselves and others, and then responding to that in a way that's not inhibited or limited by our instinctive reactions or cravings. And so uh, tomorrow in the meditation instruction we'll come back to this idea of letting go and try to explain it in terms of how in a given sitting letting go is a framework for the practice of mindfulness itself. But in conclusion, this takes us to the second of the Bodhisattva vows, which is, afflictions are inexhaustible, I vow to sever them all. And here you can see, I think, the, the paralleling with the, uh, with the four truths or the four tasks very clearly. The, the second task is to let go of reactivity. In the Chinese text, it uses the word affliction, but that's more or less synonymous. And it acknowledges that reactivity is somehow endless. Uh, it doesn't come to a stop one day. It might diminish in its power over us. But if greed and hatred and selfishness are part of our evolutionary legacy, 
uh, they'll be with us until we die. They're embedded in our limbic system. They're inexhaustible in that sense. And they are, as it were, what provides us with uh, the tinder or the, um, the stuff, almost, of our practice itself. Our practice is about letting go of whatever comes up in this way and then responding to life in a way that's not determined by their imperatives. So that's all I have to say uh, this evening. Um, we have still a few minutes and I'd be happy to respond to any queries or comments that you may have. Yes. The Dalai Lama speaks of uh, intuition increasing. Sorry, uh, intuition? Increasing. A book I read many years uh -huh. ago. With meditation. Sorry, I didn't hear the intuition, did you say? Increasing. Coming into being. Ah, okay. Sense. No. no, not really. <laughs> Start does again. So, so, did you intuition? Is that what you're saying? Intuition. intuition okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Am I well? I'm not hearing well. Okay. Intuition. Okay. Yes. Mm. Does it play any part in the vipassana? Yeah. Start? Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. No. Of course it does. Right. Um, again, I think it's it's um, when we talk of this. Parinya, this fully knowing, I think that's really just code for the total range of, uh, of, 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 of the total range of ways we have of relating to the world through our senses, uh, our cognition, our affects, our intuitions. We try to bring all of that into play in the practice of Vipassana, yes. Will these talks be on Dharma seed? Yes, provided they get recorded, yeah. <laughs> they will, won't they? Yeah. Okay, what rest assured. I have no idea. Two months. Good grief, two months. <laughs> Anything else? Yes. No, in our, not our glands, limbic. Well, limbic. It has to do with our, the, the, the part, some part of the brain or other, I think. Yeah. And you describe it as sort of natural. Yeah, that's right. Mm. But is, is it natural or, or is it a sort of um, a learned response, an habitual response to the way we see the external world, mm. separate from ourselves, mm -hmm. and therefore we're always responding in a reactive sort of way? Whereas if we could see the world as one thing, uh -huh. which we're just a part, then we needn't react in the way that we do. 
Yeah, um, well, that, of course, is what the uh, practice is largely about. I mean, the idea of, the fur, of, of, of learnt, training ourselves to pay attention to how things are transient, our dukkha, how they're not me or mine, that we're somehow enmeshed in this life of which we are a part. The more that we, that those kinds of ways of seeing uh, become, as it were, part and parcel of our sense of who we are, of the world we're in, to that extent, uh, they will, as it were, uh, go against or will somehow undermine the um, instinctive habit of, of otherness and difference and selfishness and so on. But um, I feel that there is plenty of material in all the Buddhist traditions uh, that acknowledges that even a Buddha is still having to deal with Mara, is still having to uh, you know, work with, in other words, fears and attachments and so forth. And um, the notion that somehow you can eliminate all these things, um, I think is uh, unrealistic. And particularly today, um, in the way that we understand how the human organism has evolved, um, clearly these reactions, let's say, the Buddha speaks of, are not temporary uh, modalities of our minds or things that are just culturally uh, generated, but they have a deep-seatedness in our own animal nature. And as long as we are in this body, we will be prone to the uprising of these kinds of reactions. I think that that, uh, to me, is a very important element of bringing this philosophy and this practice um, into the kind of understanding of the world that we currently have. Uh, and yet there are... I mean, what, what, when I did this book on Mara, called Living with the Devil, which I published some years ago, one of the things that really uh, surprised me in, in this research was that although the Buddha is said to have conquered Mara on the night of the Enlightenment, that's the standard myth, virtually all of the encounters with Mara that are reported in the suttas, and there's dozens of them, occur after the Enlightenment, not before. And, in fact, right up until shortly before his death. Now, if Mara is a way of talking about the forces of death, the power of reactivity, and the Buddha is still continually having to work with these powers, then he's, over, he's overcome Mara, not by having deleted him, having sort of got rid of him forever, which is the mythic fantasy, but he's overcome Mara by no longer being, uh, in a sense, uh, um, uh, no longer being able to be taken over by. He's found a freedom in his life um, that's achieved through understanding, not through some kind of spiritual lobotomy, in which these things are cut off. And in the conclusion of nearly all of the Mara dialogues, 
in the canon, uh, you find the Buddha saying, I know you, Mara. I understand you. And it's the understanding of what these processes are and how they work that frees one from their power. And I think in, you know, in Vajrayana Buddhism, for example, that this is very clear, that uh, the kileshas, the afflictions, uh, are not to be destroyed, but they are understood as energies that are to be transformed. And I think that principle is already there at work in the early texts. Uh, it's not about destroying something, which would mean destroying part of ourselves, of our, our, you know, of our own being, but rather to find a radically new and different way of relating to these things. And that's where the freedom lies. That's where the liberation lies. Um, and that is a liberation that is fully accepting of our human frailty, of our animal nature, of the legacy of our biological past. It's saying, yes, that is the kind of creature I am. And not succumbing to the, um, the inflation or the fantasy of ach having achieved some state where these things are no longer somehow part of us anymore, are no longer operative within us anymore. I think that's very important. So I do feel that if we, if we, if we, if we pursue this kind of practice and we don't allow ourselves to get endlessly taken over by these powers, that will probably diminish their, their, their force. We won't feed them, we won't uh, intensify them unnecessarily. But I still feel that even so, they will continue to be um, active and present within us. Last question. Uh, you talked about care as the, the, uh. the path to life, and obviously we talk about compassion. Yeah. Now these seem to me to be reactions. So when you talk about reactivity, mm -hmm. is it a sort of subset of reactivity that you have to be wary of? It seems to me that some, some reactions are yeah, sure. Yeah, no, exactly. No, that, 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 that is a good point. You see, I think we have to see the Dharma, the teaching of the Dharma, uh, as the Buddha described it, as a form of medical therapy. And therefore, we have to understand everything that we read in the suttas as, to, uh, as, as, uh, as part of how that therapy operates. And so the concern uh, is to work with what it is that causes sickness and disease. And it's those reactions that he is concerned with. Um, I didn't uh, spell this out clearly enough, but I make a very clear distinction between a reaction and a response. Now, admittedly, that's a semantic distinction. But, of course, there are any number of instances in our day-to-day -day lives when we find ourselves responding spontaneously with love, with kindness, with empathy, with compassion. Uh, and these arise from us naturally, too. Um, but if we are clear that what the Buddha's teaching is about is the... Uh, as it were, the, the letting go of reactivity, 
or craving or whatever we call it, then that's the domain within which this discourse can be applied. And that's where we need to uh, focus our attention. Uh, it's quite, it's a relatively narrow parameter, actually, the, the, this kind of healing process he's concerned with. Um, and we must be careful not to uh, extend that too far so that everything that arises in response to a situation is therefore to be somehow uh, overcome. No, that's clearly not the case. But um, I'll come back to this as we uh, proceed in uh, uh, tomorrow and the next day. But no, that, that, that's an important point. Thank you. Okay, we've got to stop here. Uh, we'll come back in 10 minutes uh, for our final sit. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.